Amen. Thank you, Brother Mike. And again, thank you, Music Ministry. Thank you, church family, for being in your place. This is a, a wonderful mid-August uh, Sunday night, and I'm uh, certainly thankful for what the Lord is uh, doing here in our church, and I appreciate your faithfulness. If you have your Bibles tonight, let's take them and go to the book of 2 Peter, chapter number 1, please. 2 Peter, chapter number 1. We have a number of guests and visitors with us, and of course, the nature of uh, recognizing some of these folks, uh, I'm sure, has aided and assisted in some of that, and others of you that are here tonight, and we're grateful for that. If this is your very first time at the Cleveland Baptist Church, in the pew in front of you, you'll see a QR code. And if you'll, at some point before you leave tonight, just kind of use your smartphone and hover over that with your camera, it'll take you to a digital online connection card. And if you'll take some time to fill that out, that would be a huge help to us. When the service comes to a conclusion, if you'll go by our welcome center, it's located in the back lobby. As you exit the auditorium to the back, just turn to the right, Go all the way to this far corner, and you'll find some folks there after the service that would love to greet you. I have a gift to give you for being here, and I hope uh, that you'll uh, take advantage of that. And again, we are honored and delighted uh, that you have chosen to visit with us. I'm preaching a message tonight that I've entitled, The Holy Ghost and Your Bible. The Holy Ghost and Your Bible. If you'll notice there on the screens, we have been emphasizing the Holy Spirit this year. And of course, the Holy Spirit and the Holy Ghost are the same, uh, the same person. Uh, and, of course, uh, that name is used interchangeably, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost is used often throughout our Bible uh, to identify um, who, we're, who we're dealing with. And, uh, and, of course, he's the third person of the Trinity, just as much God as God the Father and God the Son. And here's what I believe. I believe that we have experienced an outpouring of God's blessing on our church because of this emphasis. Now, I am confident of that. I believe that God has done some unusual things in our midst this year, even throughout this summer. And, uh, and I believe it's because we have really taken some time this year to think about the Holy Spirit. What role does he play in our lives? And I'm here to tell you that he plays a tremendous role. Imagine the disciples during Jesus' three and a half years trying to do ministry apart from Jesus Christ. Now we'd say that'd be a crazy thing, wouldn't it? But I want you to know something. It's just as crazy for us to try to do the ministry, the work of the ministry, apart from the Holy Spirit's power. Because he is the person that God has sent in the place of the Lord Jesus Christ. The physical manifestation of God's Son, of course, was ascended back to heaven after his resurrection. But God did not leave us without a comforter. He sent his Holy Spirit who indwells every believer. And it's high time that the church of God gets to know the Holy Spirit that we get familiar with him, that we know who he is and what he does. And so tonight we're going to talk about the Holy Ghost and your Bible. Would you look with me in verse number 21 of this passage of Scripture, Second Peter chapter number 1. We'll just read one verse, but we preach through quite a bit of this chapter. Notice what the Bible says, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. So in other words, what you read in your Old Testament does not come to us because some man had a bright idea to write some of these things. No, the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but notice the rest of the verse. But holy men of God spake as they were moved or inspired by the Holy Ghost. So we, we, we see very clearly here in this particular verse that you and I have our Bible tonight because of the work of the Holy Spirit of God. So in other words, we would not have a Bible. We would not have what we hold in our laps tonight apart from the Holy Spirit of God moving in the hearts and lives of holy men. What do you suppose is the most valuable thing on planet Earth today? 
Not necessarily a trick question. What's the most valuable thing? What's the most valuable possession? Recently in the United Kingdom, there was a a, a coronation of a brand new king. King Charles, I believe, uh, was, uh, was, was ascended to the throne after the death of his mother. And, and, uh, and, and, and I want you to see a picture here that, uh, that, that probably most of you got somewhat familiar with during that coronation period. That's the crown. Uh, that's some of the other things. The, the orb there looks like a giant Christmas tree ornament to us, but to them it's obviously much more than that. What you're looking at tonight are the crown jewels. Some might say, well, that's the most... That's the most valuable thing on planet Earth. The royal family's crown jewels are said to be priceless. In other words, there really isn't a, a monetary figure you can put upon them due to their historic and cultural value. However, that being said, experts have valued the crown jewels between 2 and $5.8 billion in worth. Now think about that for a moment. That's a lot of money. That's pretty valuable, I think most of us would agree. As a boy, I, uh, I grew up collecting baseball cards. I'm sure many of you perhaps were involved in, in similar activity as a young person. And uh, I don't think I ever had really any cards that were worth a great deal from what I can remember. Uh, if they were, they, they, they were thrown away or they got bent up or they got ruined because I didn't realize how valuable that they might have been at some point. But I'm given to understand that the current record for a card, for a baseball card, is this one in the next picture that you'll see here. This is a 1952 Mickey Mantle rookie baseball card, which recently sold for $12.6 million. Now think about that for a moment. Some little boy like me got that when he was a kid and he decided, I'm gonna hold on to this thing and I'm gonna make sure it remains in really, really good value. And, and obviously that, uh, that, that would be, uh, that would be something if any one of us owned a baseball card such as that. So we'd say, well, that's pretty, that's pretty valuable to have something like that in your possession. Then I, then I got to thinking about, um, about maybe something else. And, you know, when you, when you and I think of expensive wristwatches, the, the name that often comes to our mind is Rolex. That's the, uh, the name, I suppose, that we're most familiar with. Most of us, were wearing Timexes, not Rolexes. But, uh, but regardless of that, when we think of an expensive watch, uh, we think of Rolex. And the Rolex watches are priced anywhere between $6,500 and $75,000. Now, can you imagine for just a moment spending $75,000 on a watch? The average price for a Rolex is between $7,000 and $12,000. And that sounds like a lot of money to us until you compare it with this watch right here. This watch maybe is not familiar to too many of us, but it's known as a Richard Mill watch. M-I-L-L-E. Anybody heard of a Richard Mill watch? Celebrities and and uh, and, and uh, athletes and uh, that sort of thing. Folks that have a whole lot of money this is sort of seen as a status symbol. I'm given to understand that this Richard Mill watch sold for $6.8 million. Now think about that for a moment. Who has, who has that kind of money? I mean, I mean, look, if you really want to know the time bad enough, just get yourself a cell phone. It'll do the trick. Or ask your neighbor or walk into any building just about anywhere, and there should be a clock somewhere nearby. I don't, even know, I don't even know what would make a watch like this so valuable, but I'm given to understand that, again, this is 
sort of seen as a status symbol, the average price for a Richard Mill watch is around $200,000 in worth. At those prices, a Rolex is really a poor man's watch in many respects. Now, we could talk tonight about luxury cars and yachts and, and private jets. All of these would likely cost much more than what any of us would be able or willing to, uh, to pay. But what, uh, but what if I told you, what if I told you tonight that most of you already own the most valuable possession on earth? Now, you and I, we, we look at these items and we think, sure, it'd be nice to have something like that. Well, I'd like a Mickey Mantle rookie card. I'll take a, I'll take a Richard Mill watch. I'll, you know, I'll, 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 take, I'll take a Rolex if, if, if you give it to me. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't mind, you know, uh, you know, having that gigantic Christmas tree ornament to, you know, to have in my home and to add to my collection. I'll take some of those things. But what if I told you, what if I told you that you already own the most valuable possession on planet Earth? It's something that most of us have had since we were very young. Many of us, many of us have multiples of this particular item. In many cases and in many homes, this item is mostly ignored and it's left to collect dust. I believe, I believe tonight that the Bible, the Word of God, the book that you and I hold in our laps tonight is the most valuable thing, the most valuable possession that any of us have owned because of what it teaches, because of what it is superior to, and because of who it is that gave it to us. This book that you and I, most of us, holding one in our laps, and we have extra copies perhaps at home, and maybe you've even got one at the workplace, and maybe you've got one down in the basement and one in the bedroom that sits right by your nightstand that you, you and I can read, and perhaps many of you have it in a digital form on a cell phone or on a tablet. This, this Bible, the Word of God, is by far the most valuable possession on the face of this earth. This book was given to us over a period of 1,500 years. The Holy Spirit of God inspired approximately 40 different human penmen. But again, as we said a moment ago, the common thread throughout all of it was the whispering influence of the Holy Spirit. Not only was this book authored or inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, but it also has been preserved for us today in its current form by the Holy Spirit of God. Most of us would know the human penman of God's Word. We would know the names like Moses and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Matthew and Mark and Luke, John and Paul. But few, few of us would know the names of the hundreds of scribes who were careful to make meticulous copies down through the centuries of God's Word. See, great printing capabilities are available, capabilities are available to us today, but that has not always been the case. You and I live in a day and age in which, you know, through a, uh, through a, through a printing press, you can make a copy of something in a very short amount of time by just clicking a button. But, uh, but over the period of, of history, over the, uh, down through the ages, men, listen, men, men that you and I will never know, we'll never know their names, we'll never know much about them. But listen, I want you to know something. The Holy Spirit of God used them uh, to transcribe the Word of God. Hundreds and thousands of copies were made uh, by, by men who were dedicated to this book. And that's one of the reasons why you and I have what we have today. The Holy Spirit of God is responsible for these things. Preservation of God's Word required some to give their lives to copy this book 
with their own hand over and over again. Others gave their lives to death in order to preserve this book for us in our own language. The Middle Ages ended with the Reformation. And the key component of the Reformation was men who were committed to translating and producing copies of God's Word in the language of the people. You see, the Middle Ages are also known as the Dark Ages. And that's, that's, not, a, that's not a term that is not spiritual in its origin. You see, the Dark Ages were the Dark Ages because of the absence of God's Word. The Bible is clear that it's God's Word that gives light. It's God's Word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. That's what the Bible is. And yet for nearly a thousand years, the Word of God was uh, was really literally legislated against that you could not you could not translate it in the language of the people. People aren't smart enough to understand this book. It would be a dangerous thing in the hands of people. And so as a result of that, world leaders kept men and women in a state of perpetual spiritual darkness. Many were tortured and burned alive for their desire and commitment to ensure that people had a copy of the Bible available to them. Holy Spirit of God used men like Luther and Tyndale and Wycliffe and a host of others to give us what we have today. Obviously, the Reformers weren't perfect men. There's no such thing as a perfect man, but I do believe God used them, and a key part of their work was preservation and translation and distribution of God's Word. You see now why this book that you and I hold in our hands is so very precious? In order for you to have it, the Holy Spirit had to move in the lives of imperfect but holy men to write it. The Holy Spirit of God had to impress upon scribes the, the idea of copying it and doing it so meticulously so that every word was written down verbatim from the originals. The Holy Spirit of God had to move in the hearts and lives of men to, uh, to give their lives to translate it, others to give their lives to print it, others to give their lives to distribute it, and some, listen, some who were even willing to die for it. We've emphasized the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our church this year. And I truly believe, as I said a moment ago, that God has blessed us for this emphasis. And can I say that it may be, it may be that the Holy Spirit's greatest work and his most enduring legacy in the lives of men in this world is what you and I hold in our laps tonight, the Bible. Peter wrote here in 2 Peter 1 that the prophecy or God's word did not come by the will or the idea of men but rather that holy men of God, they spake. That means they wrote. They wrote as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. I remind you tonight that this book is not authored by men. This book does not come to us by the will or the idea of men. No, listen, this book comes to us from God himself. And every time we open it, and every time we read from it, listen, we are hearing, we are hearing God's voice speaking into our very lives, into our very homes, into our community, into our churches. I say three things tonight about this idea as I consider this chapter. I say, first of all, the Holy Ghost uses the Word of God to teach us transformative truths we could not otherwise know. Why is this book so important? Because you will learn things in this book that you will not learn anywhere else. You'll learn things in this book that you will not learn in a history classroom. You'll learn things in this book that you will not learn uh, in a math classroom. 
You'll learn some things in this book that you will not learn by sitting down and reading some of the great philosophers of, uh, of our world, perhaps uh, living today or those that have gone on before us. No, what we find in this book, the Word of God, we find transformative truths that literally can transform our lives. Without this book, we would not know of our sin. We would not know of God's love for us. We would not know of Christ's suffering, his death and his resurrection. We would not know how to live successful lives down here. We would not know of Christ's second coming and the blessed hope that we have. This book teaches me how to be an obedient child and it's also at the same time how to be a godly parent. This book teaches me how to be a godly husband or a godly wife, how to be a diligent employee or a Christ-honoring employer. This book teaches me how to be a faithful church member or how to be a servant-hearted pastor or leader. In other words, God's word gives us clear direction in whatever role that we might find ourselves in tonight. Your husband, you want to be a better one? Well, there's some books I suppose I could recommend, but I can't recommend any book more than I can recommend this book the Word of God. You're a student? You want to be a better student? Well, I suppose there's some things that you could do, but there's nothing, there's nothing that you could do more that'll help you more than get into this book and live according to this book. You're a church member? You think to yourself, you know, I, I've been a member here, but I want to do more. I want to be more. I want to serve more. I want to be more faithful. Well, I suppose I could recommend some podcasts to you and maybe some websites and some YouTube videos. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, you know the best thing that you could do? The best thing you can do is just get into this book and read it and study it and learn it and know it and live it. Notice what the Holy Spirit of God tells us in this chapter. Number one, he tells us that grace and peace are multiplied through the knowledge of this book. Would you look in verse number two? Peter is writing and he says, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Let me ask you this question. Where do we get the knowledge of God? Where do we get the knowledge of Jesus our Lord? The only place, the only place that you're gonna get that is in this book. Do you know what Peter's saying? Peter's saying, listen, the more you know about God, the more you know about his son, the more grace and peace are going to be multiplied to you. Have you ever stopped to think about some missing components in our world today? You know, if, if you talk to politicians, they'll tell you, well, yeah, we... We need more, we need better education and we need better health care and we need better social programs and we need better this and better that. But you know, as I, I'm, I'm a simple guy. I'm not as smart as some of these politicians, but you know what I think we need more of? I think we need a little more grace in our world, don't you? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be nice? By the way, that starts with us, those of us who've experienced grace. If we're not willing to give grace, then chances are the world's not, certainly not gonna lead the way in showing it. I think to myself, boy, this world could use a little bit more grace. Earlier today, we were on our way to men's prayer meeting. Came to a stop at a light. It's the longest light. It's the longest light in the city, I'm convinced. It's Hauserman and Brook Park Road. Some of you live that direction. You know what I'm talking about. We sat there, and it was about, it was about 7.45 in the morning, maybe 7.50, and the light turned green, and the lady in front of me didn't move. And you know what I was doing. <laughs> My hand was on that wheel, but it was moving. It was, it was sitting right. It was sitting right there, you know. And I held on for a minute, and I held my composure. And I, I think I sat there for two or three seconds, and I thought, if I have to sit at this light again, it's not going to be a good day, you know. And and the person in front of me began moving, and my son was with me. And he looked at me and said, "Dad, why didn't you honk your horn?" 
And I, uh, I, I thought, he's watching. <laughs> he's watching. And I, I, I said, you know, I, I was digging. He was asking, you know. And I thought, what a great opportunity. It's something simple like that. Show a little grace. Go to the grocery store. Let somebody go in front of you. Help somebody. Do something. Be kind to someone. Show a little love to someone. Don't you suppose the world could use a little bit more of that? Don't you think your neighborhood could benefit from some of that? How about your office place? You think it could benefit from a little bit of grace? Grace, he says. But not just grace, but then he says grace and peace. Those things are multiplied through the knowledge of this book. I think to myself that these two qualities shouldn't just be present in our lives, but they should be multiplying in our lives. That's what he says. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. You know what happens? The closer I get to God and the closer I get to Jesus, the more grace I get and the more peace I have. Have you noticed that this world doesn't have a whole lot of peace? Have you noticed that there's a lot of hand-wringing and there's a lot of anxiety and there's a lot of struggle in this world about lots of different things, whether it be you know, the, the pandemics or whether it be the wildfires or whether it be you know, any number of things that are happening that we're familiar with, maybe the political scene or, or perhaps maybe the financial scene and, and maybe people are looking at the forecasts of things and saying, well, the stock market's gonna crash or we're gonna go into another shutdown of, of some variation of some virus or whatever the case might be and there's a lot of hand wring in our world and I'm just here to tell you the closer you get to God the Father and the closer you get to his son the more peace you have you know when you're when you're constantly overwhelmed with fear and anxiety and worry you know what you're doing you're in some respects you're telling on yourself and you're letting everybody know I'm really not all that close to the Lord because the closer I get to the Lord the more peace I have it gets multiplied in my life do you suppose you could use a little bit more of that I know I could grace and peace how do, we, how do we know where to get these things? You wouldn't know that unless you went to God's word. You wouldn't know that unless you read it in the Bible. The Holy Spirit of God, he brings truths like this to the surface. But notice, secondly, not only that grace and peace are multiplied through the knowledge of this book, Holy Spirit teaches us that. But notice, secondly, he also teaches us this truth, and that is this. The new birth is just the beginning. The new birth is just the beginning. Now, if you're here tonight and you've been saved, then I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. That is a wonderful, wonderful thing. But I want you to know something. You've just, you've, just, you've just gotten to the very beginning. You've gotten to the starting line. Spirit of God, listen, has so much more for you than just the new birth. New birth is wonderful. It's wonderful. It's what, it, it, it's what brings us into fellowship with God. It's what forgives us of our sins. And it's what uh, births us into his family and guarantees us a home in heaven. But the Apostle Peter writes here, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, he says there's so much more for you than just the new birth. Look what he says in verse number three, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things. By the way, his divine power, you know what that is? That's his divine power to birth you into his family. God did that by his own will, birthed you in his family. And that divine power now rests within us because I'm his child. I, I, I have his DNA coursing through me, spiritually speaking, of course. And we discover that it is his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby, verse number four, are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these 
ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. And then he goes to the next several verses and he gives a list of things, a list of things that ought to be added to our lives once we've experienced the new birth. See them there, verse number five. And beside this, giving all diligence, you got to work at it. You have to work at being saved. God does that. But if you're going to grow, you're going to have to put a little bit of effort into it. You have to give some diligence to this. You're going to have to be committed to it. Beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. So we're adding things. Faith is the beginning part. Faith is the, the baseline. Now we're beginning to take steps. I'm adding to some things. Why? Because the new birth is just the beginning. The new birth indicates that I have faith, but God says, I don't want you to, I don't want you to stop there. I want you to keep going. Therefore, I want you to add virtue, purity to your life. And then from virtue, I want you to add knowledge to your life. We're going to get that knowledge in this book. And then to knowledge, add temperance. And then to temperance, add patience, verse 6. And to patience, add godliness. And to godliness, add brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, add charity. Look what he says in verse number 8. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says at the end of verse number 10, for if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Oh man, the word of God teaches us what we need to know. You know, the Holy Spirit of God is telling us in this passage. He's saying, listen, if you've been saved, wonderful. But that's just the beginning. There's so much more for you than that. There's probably not a person in this room that can't think of someone who got saved, and that's been about the extent of it. They've really not gone any further. They don't really come to church. They don't really read their Bible. It's between really them and the Lord. God is the ultimate judge. But I want you to know something. That's not what God designed the Christian life to be. Oh, God designed the Christian life to be so much more than that. Oh, the Christian life is, it just, it just begins with the new birth. And we're to be adding things. You're here tonight on a Sunday night because you have a desire to add some things to your life. You have a desire for your children to get a hold of some of these things. And these things need to be poured into us. The new birth is just the beginning. Notice what Peter writes about those committed to growth in the Christian life. He says in verse 10 that they shall never fall. You know what he means by that? Basically, he's saying that those who give evidence in their lives of these qualities, here's what they reveal. They reveal that they are truly saved. So Peter's actually writing here. Well, really, the Holy Spirit of God is giving this to us. And he's saying, listen, someone, someone who's adding these things and is living this way, they, will, they, they don't ever have to worry about dying and going to hell. It, they, they're giving evidence. They're giving evidence that the Holy Spirit of God has transformed their life. They never have to worry about that ultimate destruction, that ultimate punishment. But I think there's a secondary truth that is noted here, and that is this, that they don't ever have to, have to worry even or wonder about their eventual eternal destiny. They, they're living in life in such a way that it is obvious by the change that God has made in their lives that they are his children and that heaven is their home. If people look at our lives, listen, if they look at our lives and they have a hard time discerning if we're truly born again, that is a problem. That's a huge problem. They have to sit there and wonder, you know, I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure that this person's really saved. 
I'm not sure that this person's really born again. I understand that, that you're not my judge and I'm not your judge. I understand that God will, God will judge us all, but I'm just simply saying it's a problem if we're not living life in such a way as to say, you know, the new birth was just the beginning. I'm trying to get as much of God and as much of his word in me as I possibly can. I'm trying to be as close to him in my life and I'm looking as much like him as I possibly can. I believe those committed to growing will also be safe. Listen, they'll be safe from major temptations and catastrophes that befall those who yield these temptations. I don't mean, I don't mean that they will be free from temptation, that temptation will never come calling. But here's what I do mean. I do believe that they will stand up and they will resist these temptations by the power of God, listen, that is multiplying or that is growing within them. Say, man, I keep falling over and over and over again to the same things. I keep struggling in the same areas. What is wrong with me? Get into this book and begin adding some of these things to your life. It's possible that all you have right now is faith. And God says, I want you to have some charity and I want you to have some virtue and I want you to have some godliness and I want you to have some brotherly kindness and I want you to have some of this and I want you to have some of that and if that, those things be in you and if you do these things, you shall never fall. Notice secondly, the Holy Ghost not only uses the word of God to teach us transformative truths we could not otherwise know, but notice, secondly, the Holy Ghost uses the word of God in the absence of signs and wonders. The Holy Ghost uses the word of God in the absence of signs and wonders. Verse number 16, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, there's not a person in this room here tonight that wouldn't want some access to the same miraculous power that was at work in the Bible narratives. I mean, we read stories of diseases being healed, of handicapped people being restored, the use of their legs or their bodies, whatever it might be, the dead being raised back to life. Listen, those are just some of the things that we read about in the Bible. But listen, I'm here to tell you that according to what we read here in God's word, you and I, what we hold in our lap tonight is superior to that. That's what he's saying. It's greater than that. Let me, let me just point out, first of all, this first thought, and that is this, that there are some, there are some who were privileged to experience signs and wonders. Peter is, Peter is one of those people, and he identifies that for us in this text. In verses 16 to 18, he talks about the fact that he was an eyewitness of his majesty, of Jesus' majesty, and secondly, he says this, he says, and I heard the very voice of God the Father. He says it very clearly. Look in verse, uh, uh, verse number 17. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice, uh, excuse me, uh, such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the Holy Mount. Now, obviously, we understand that Peter's referencing here the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. Where they went up on a mountain, Jesus took the three, Peter, James, and John. They went up to the top of this mountain. Elijah and Moses came and communed with Jesus. The Bible says that he was transfigured or transformed, that he took upon him the, 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 the presence of what he, what, he, what he would look like in heaven with all of his glory and with all of his awe and all of his wonder. And Peter says, I was an eyewitness of that. And then if that wasn't enough, while we were there in that mount, we heard the very voice of God. How that voice must have thundered. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Peter's writing about this particular event. 
that took place in the, in the mountain. And I just have to tell you, there's not a person in this room that wouldn't have wanted to experience that event, that wouldn't have wanted to be there on that mountain that day and to, and, and to have been an eyewitness of Christ's majesty and to have heard the very voice of God with our own ears. And there are some, there's some who were privileged, according to the Bible, to experience signs and wonders. But here's what, here's what, here's what Peter comes to this conclusion through the Holy Spirit of God, and that is this, number two, that the word of God is superior to signs and wonders. Now, you, you, if you want to argue with me, that's fine. But I want you to know something. You're really not arguing with me. You're arguing with God. Because look what he says in verse, in, in verse number 19. He says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. You know what he's saying? He's saying, listen, I, I was on that mountain. I saw it and I heard it. And that was something. But he says, I want you to know something. We have something better. We have a more sure word of prophecy. And that got me to thinking. Why is God's word in written form, why is it superior to signs and wonders? And I, I, I kind of came up with a list of some things, just three of them, I want to share them with you. Number one is because signs and wonders are not for everyone. They're not. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, I would imagine that there were a lot of sick people living throughout the Bible that were never healed. I mean, live, living in Israel that just, you know, they, 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 never, they never got to where Jesus was. Perhaps they never heard about him. Maybe Jesus never came down their street. I mean, he, he, he lived for three and a half, 33, 33 and a half years, and his public ministry was only about three and a half years. There's no way that he could have walked down every street of every town in the nation of Israel. And, and he, there, there's just no way that one person could have healed all of those people during three and a half years. It just would not have been possible. I got to thinking this, that Christ only fed 5,000. He did not feed everyone in Israel. On that day when he took the loaves and the fishes and he began to break them and he began to distribute them, there were at least 5,000 men, the Bible says, besides the women and children. We don't know exactly how many, but we know this. We know there's a whole lot more people living in Israel than those that were on that hillside that day. And so while it was really neat for those people to have experienced that event, not everybody got fed by, by the hand of Jesus during the earthly ministry of Christ. I think that only a select few, only a select few saw him walk on water and saw him calm the raging seas. Whoever was on the sea that day and, and, and would, have been, would have been close in proximity to Jesus that would have heard him say, peace be still, and he calmed the troubled waters and he calmed the raging sea and he calmed the, the wind that was blowing and the, uh, the clouds that were swirling above them. Only a few people saw that. So signs and wonders are not for everyone, which is why the word of God is superior. And can I say number two, here's another reason why God's word is superior, because signs and wonders are temporary. What I mean by that is this, those who were, who were healed of sickness, guess what? They got sick again, because that's the nature of living down here. And those who, who were fed that day, guess what? They got hungry again. And those who were raised back to life, they died again. What's, the, what's worse than dying once? Dying twice. Now think about that for a moment. I got to do this again? You know, I, I would have thought, you know, he raised me back to life. I would have thought, you know, that's it. No, they had to die again. Why? Because signs and wonders are temporary. Living in a sin-cursed earth, it, it, it's going to take things over once again, and it's going to begin to destroy things once again. Notice the third reason 
Because signs and wonders can be forgotten. They can be. You, you, you say, there's no way. There's no way that anybody who stood outside Lazarus' grave on the day that Jesus said Lazarus came forth, there's no way those people ever forgot. Well, I would agree with you. They, they probably never actually forgot the specific event because when you see somebody come out of the grave who's been dead for four days, you're not going to forget that specifically. But there's something about human, a human being that can sort of begin to move on from that and can sort of begin to look at current problems and current issues and look at them as being more overwhelming than, than the power that they experience. I think to myself that God himself grew frustrated with his own people in the Old Testament for their lack of faith, considering all that he had done for them. He delivered them from Egypt with the 10 plagues. He parted the Red Sea. He fed them with manna for 40 years. He led them with a cloud and a pillar of fire. And yet they still displayed an amazing lack of faith in God. And they were quick to complain when not everything went according to how they thought it should go. You say, did they really? Hold your place and go to Psalm 78. I want you to see it. Psalm 78. Look in verse number 11. About the children of Israel, here's what God has to say. And forget his works and his wonders that he had showed them. Marvelous things did he in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through and he made the waters to stand as in heap. In the daytime also he led them with a cloud and all the night with a light of fire. He clave the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink as out of the great depths. He brought streams also out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. And they, and they sinned yet more against him by provoking the most high in the wilderness. You know what God is saying? God's saying, look at all that I did. Look at all the miracles that you saw. And yet what did it produce in your life? It produced sin and it produced the ability even to forget all of those works. Would you look with me down in verse number 32 of this text? It says, for all this, for all this, they sinned still and believed not for his wondrous works. Therefore, their days did he consume in vanity and their years in trouble. Man. Think about that. Think about all they saw. And they still forgot how powerful God is and how great God is. And they wavered in their faith. Why is God's word superior? Details about signs and wonders can be forgotten about. You know, was, you know, was, was, was it his right leg or his left leg that got healed? I can't remember. Was he... Was he, was he totally blind or was he legally blind? You know, I'm not sure. Did he, uh, did he, have, uh, did he have leprosy or did he have cancer? I, I can't remember. Were, were, there, were, there, were there five loaves of bread and two fish or were there six loaves of bread and four fish? I, I mean, you under, right? You understand how the human mind works? And most of you are sitting here going, I, I know all about that. <laughs> Were we married on August the 10th or August the 12th? Was it 1975 or not? Is this kid sitting here? Is he really mine? I'm not even sure. I don't know. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing how we, how we can forget things. So God said, listen, I, I'm going to give you something better than signs and wonders. Because signs and wonders, they're, they're not even for everyone. 
You can forget about signs and wonders. They're just temporary. I mean, you know, I can heal you some things, but it's probably going to come back at some point. Peter, Peter on his own might have forgotten the specific words God spoke from heaven as the years passed on. But God's word in written form never leaves us to wonder what God has said. The memory tends to fade and tends to forget different things over time, but God's word never changes. And listen, listen, everyone who wants to has access to it. You want want to know what God has to say? Just open the Bible and begin to read. If you can read, and if it's translated into your language, you can hear from God today. You don't have to just hope that somehow, some way, God's gonna pick you to go up to some holy mount and you're gonna hear his very voice. No, 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 listen, you can go home tonight and you can sit in your living room or in your basement or wherever it is that you get alone with God and you can listen to God speak to you tonight. You don't have to wait for some mountain experience. You don't have to wait for some sign and wonder. Open the book and read it because God says it's a more sure word of prophecy. By the way, signs and wonders, signs and wonders most often Focused on the physical. They did. And can I tell you, the physical is temporal. You fill my belly today, and it's gonna need something to eat tomorrow. But listen, listen, the word of God, why is it superior? Because God's word addresses not just the physical, but it addresses the spiritual, which is eternal. In other words, you fill me up, listen, you fill me up with this book, and I'll never thirst again. I'll never hunger again. Why? Because I've got God's word that comes up in my life, the Bible says, as a fountain that is eternal. It's perpetual, continues to flow. Thirdly and finally, notice tonight, the Holy Ghost used men to give us the word of God. That's what he says in verse 21. And by the way, notice that God uses not just any kind of man, God uses holy men of God. In other words, God uses pure men to accomplish his will. Listen, there's no such thing as a perfect man apart from our Savior, Jesus Christ. But God did use men who were pure to accomplish his will. Can I just say, God will not use you, God cannot use you if if you're a filthy vessel, if you allow impurity into your life, if you allow wickedness, if you expose yourself to wickedness, and if you tolerate that, and if you coddle that in your life, if you have some secret sin that you're toying around with, understand this, God cannot, God will not, he will not use you. Pretty obvious God used holy men. So how, how, did, how, did we, how do we put these specific books in this Bible? How, how do we get this? It's called the canon of Scripture. Where did it come from? And do, you know one of, do you know one of the reasons why these books are included? It's because these books were, were universally believed by Christians, by believers, to be written by godly men. In other words, when, when, when David wrote down, sat down and wrote something, the people sat up and took notice because that was David. And when Daniel, when he sat down and he put things down on paper, people said, well, this this is worth holding on to because this isn't just anybody. This is Daniel, and we know Daniel, and we know God's hand is upon Daniel. When Moses, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote the first five books of the Bible known as the Pentateuch or the Law or the Torah, people sat up and took notice, and they said, hey, save those books. Those were written by Moses. We know Moses, a holy man of God. And when Moses opens his mouth to speak, you better listen. It's one of the reasons why. There's, there's much more than that. It's one of the reasons why we have the books that we have because these books were written by people, they were penned at least, by people who were known to be holy men of God. And they only spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now listen, if you're a filthy vessel tonight, you don't have to stay that way. 
You don't have to stay that way. Confess your sins. Repent and get right with God. And God can begin to use you tonight. You don't have to wait any longer. God can begin to use you tonight. Notice, lastly tonight, this book is God's word. It's what we learn in this text, and it is not the words of men. Every verse, every chapter, every page, every book, we can have complete confidence in. Listen, the devil is working overtime. Say, what's he he trying to do? Is he trying to get me to sin some great sin? Well, probably, yes. But I want you to know, the, the thing he wants to do the most is to destroy your confidence in this book. That's what he wants to do the most. To get you to begin to doubt this book in any way, shape, or form. Because listen, if you begin to doubt one story, then what's gonna keep you from doubting the next one? If you begin to doubt one doctrine, one teaching, what's gonna keep you from doubting the next one? If you, if, if you think this is, this is the words of Peter and Paul and Moses or David, well, that, that, that's fine because those were holy men of God, but that's not gonna get us through what we need to get through in this life. I'm thankful for these men and the lives they lived, but listen, I don't have faith in them to be right all of the time, but here's who I do have faith in to be right all the time is the Holy Spirit of God. He's never wrong. He's always right. And he tells, us, he tells us in this text and in other places, all scriptures given by inspiration of God, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Do you love this book? Do you love this book? If you do, then read it regularly. Live, live by it. Proclaim it to others. And then, and then why don't you also be faithful when it is open and is taught as we do in the local church week after week? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed for just a moment.